Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 20. This will be our last sermon in Matthew for a little bit as we get into the holiday season. It's on page 825 if you're using one of the blue chair Bibles. You know, as my kids get older, I find myself doing more explaining. Think of the contrast in parenting between a toddler and a teenager. And by the way, if you don't see a contrast there, uh, that may bring some trouble in the future. But it's different how you parent a toddler and how you parent a teenager. And one of the ways that it's different is you have to explain yourself more. And that's for a couple reasons. Not an exhaustive list, but here's a few. First, they're better able to argue back. Unless you have a really gifted toddler, they're not going to create a PowerPoint in which they argue with you. And here's three reasons why they should be able to have macaroni and cheese at every meal. When they're older, they're better, better able to use facts and logic and your own hypocrisy against you. Secondly, one of the reasons is I don't want there to be misunderstandings as they are interpreting what I am doing. There's so much opportunity for them to misunderstand what we do as parents. And thirdly, one day when they are adults they will need to make similar decisions. So to show them why I've made certain decisions is a part of training them for when I'm not there and they need to make similar decisions. And I want to highlight those last two because I think they're helpful in, rem- in understanding our text today. This idea of clearing up misunderstandings and preparing for the future. You know, I think one of the times that we feel these pressures more acutely is at times of transition. So when you have a child that becomes a teenager, when they turn 13, or when they start or finish high school or college, right? Those times where there is deep transition. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is having to explain for both understanding and for preparation in the future, to his disciples at a significant transition in his ministry. If you look at the book of Matthew as a whole, the end of chapter 20 is a very significant transition in the text. Let me illustrate that in two ways. Number one is chapter 21 is Palm Sunday, right? That's the beginning of Jesus' last week. But there's also clues about it that we're going to see here at the end of chapter 20. And that is, near the beginning, we're going to see, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. And if you've read the end of Matthew, you know what happens when he goes to Jerusalem. And so Matthew highlighting this is highlighting for us, his readers, that this is a significant time of transition. And Jesus 
He's going to take some time to explain to his disciples both what he is doing in the present, but then also how they should live in the future. So let's look at that. Our text is going to have three parts. They are not equal, so don't worry as you're keeping track of what verse we're on. Don't worry about it. It's fine. It's fine. Okay, but we're going to start with verses 17 to 19. Follow along as I read. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. As I just mentioned, Matthew the narrator moves us along in the story and telling us, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. But we also see this in what Jesus said in verse 17. So so Matthew says, hey, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and then what does he have Jesus say? See, we are going up to Jerusalem. I hope you get the point. We're going to Jerusalem. Now, I love, I love to do this. I used to annoy my Greek professor because that word see is the word sometimes translated behold or sort of it's calling attention. I would always translate it, hey, and my Greek professor did not find that funny. But that's another story for another time. But Jesus and Matthew are calling our attention to this fact. But it's also important to see Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. There's a false teaching that pops its head up every generation or so of like, poor Jesus, all this stuff happened to him. Jesus, the peasant victim of the bad Roman army. And in one sense, that is completely untrue because Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. I want you to appreciate, as I read it again, I want you to appreciate all the details that Jesus includes in this verse. Okay, let's look at verse 18 and 19. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Look at all the details there, right? The mentioning the role of the chief priests and the scribes. He mentions the involvement of the Gentiles in his execution. He even mentions that he will be mocked and flogged and crucified. Again, all of these details of the crucifixion narrative. And maybe most surprising, and again, this is something as as I've read through Matthew in preparation for these sermons, It has been a pleasant surprise to me to realize how often Jesus actually mentions both the crucifixion and the resurrection. And you see that here. That before anything has happened, before Palm Sunday, Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to be resurrected, raised on the third day. I want you to see in here that Jesus is preparing the disciples for what is going to happen. He's saying, guys, look, this is what's going to happen. 
So that when it happened, and again, they're going to be surprised anyway. But can you imagine if he hadn't said anything before all this happened? But the other thing I want you to see here is Jesus knowing this is going to happen, I think it emphasizes that he willingly went to Jerusalem. He willingly went to the place where he knew that he would be crucified on the cross. Jesus was not a victim of political circumstances. He willingly died for you and me that we could be saved. But it also highlights that the victory of King Jesus is never done through political uprising. You know, you see that throughout the Gospels where, where the, the disciples and the people following Jesus think he's going to be this political king that kicks out the Romans, right? But Jesus is saying, look, that's not my kingdom. My kingdom is not from kicking out the Romans. My kingdom is dying a sacrificial death for my people. And if you don't understand that, then you will misunderstand everything that happens in the last week of Jesus' life. And especially, again, what's the next thing that happens? A giant victory parade. And Jesus is saying, look guys, even when I have this parade on Sunday, don't misunderstand. I'm not coming in as a political leader. I'm not coming in as leading a revolt, I'm coming to die and rise again for the sins of my people. So as we again put it in this context of Jesus explaining what he is about, this also will reflect in the next two parts of the passage that what Jesus done is completely connected to how then we live. So how you live has at its center Jesus' death and resurrection. And in the next two passages, we're going to see how that changes how we live in the future as followers of Jesus. So let's look at that first one. This is the longer section of the text. We'll work through the different parts. But let's look at verses 20 to 28, beginning with verses 20 to 21. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. I love this part of the story where this mom brings her boys, who are probably grown men. They're young men, but they're grown men, I think, at this point. And she comes up to Jesus, she kneels down in front of him, show him respect, and he says, what, what do you want? What, what do you want from me? And she replies this, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. We should understand this request as asking that her sons be given positions of authority in Jesus' kingdom. I once heard someone make an analogy for this request to the U.S.'s president's cabinet. 
something like make one of my sons secretary of state and the other attorney general. Now, not to get too far ahead of myself, I I really appreciated what one of the commentaries wrote concerning this verse. Again, in the context of this whole passage, despite Jesus' repeated predictions of his suffering and death, two disciples and their mother are still thinking about privilege, status, and power. I think it's helpful to to see this request as a real view into what they were thinking. If you think, again, that Jesus is going to kick out the Romans, then you would be foolish not to ask for a place in the cabinet. But that is why it is so important that Jesus did not win a political salvation for us. He didn't just reign on earth as a king. But rather, he suffered and died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life. But I said you can see how his followers and their mothers are misunderstanding what Jesus is about. Well, let's move on to the text and how Jesus is going to respond to this request. Look at verses 22 to 24. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. I want you to appreciate how Jesus lovingly He loves his disciples so much he's willing to correct them. Look how he begins his response. You do not know what you are asking. I want you to see this as a kind yet candid response from Jesus. That their request is more ignorance than malevolence. You know, have you ever heard the phrase, the dog that caught the car? Right, You have this dog chasing a car. Well, what's it going to do when, if it actually catches up to the car? People use this to describe someone who has reached their goal but doesn't know what to do next. And I think it's helpful to think of this for James and John, that they, they think they know what they want. They think they know what they're asking But on one level, they they have no idea what they're asking for. So Jesus tells them, you do not know what you are asking. And then he asks them this question, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And here, this this idea of drinking the cup is used to talk about, are you able to go through the experience that I'm going to experience? Again, what has Jesus just talked about? I'm going to suffer and die. And your request is about experiencing glory and power. 
You know, it's a somber truth that following Jesus is not all glory and power. And if Jesus suffered, then those who follow him will be able to experience hardship. will have to experience hardship as well. But how did James and John answer? They answer confidently, we are able. I wonder if at this point Jesus kind of cracked a smile and sort of sighed a little bit. In one sense, they have no idea what lies ahead. And on the other, on the other hand, there's something admirable about their presumably youthful confidence. I don't know if you've ever had that conversation with someone who's just very confident about what they're going to do, but yet they don't have a full picture of what it'll cost. And again, I just picture Jesus sort of cracking a smile and sighing a little bit, just because they don't know. But look what he says in response. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus, in some sense, is saying to them, look, you want to go through what I'm going through? You you will. And you're not going to fully understand that till later. Again, the commentators are helpful here that In one sense, we know that James and John did. One of the commentators writes, in a sense, they can and will drink from his cup of suffering. James would be the first apostolic martyr, as recorded in Acts chapter 12. And John, presuming it's the same John who wrote Revelation, would suffer exile. On that last point, I appreciated something Steve brought up at our meeting this week that a part of John's cup experiencing this, based on what we know of his long life, that he witnessed all of the passing of the other disciples. So in one sense, he did experience it, both in his own life, but also witnessing the death of the other disciples. Whether they knew it or not, James and John would follow Jesus, and they would learn fully what they thought they knew in this story. And sometimes, sometimes God does teach us that way when we speak hastily. We think we know that what we are saying, but God in his grace and sovereignty will bring about those things in our lives and even in ways that we do not expect. Even those times when we look back at our younger selves and say, what was I even saying back then? But Jesus does address this idea of his right hand and his left hand, these positions of authority in his kingdom. Look what he says, But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. One of the things I think is fascinating about this response is that Jesus does not deny that those positions exist. Right? He doesn't say, hey guys, don't worry. No one's going to be at my right and left hand in the kingdom. What does he actually say? Uh, Those decisions are up to the Father. And he has prepared those places for those people. 
where I think we can find encouragement is in that phrase, for whom it has been prepared by my Father. In one sense, Jesus is telling them not to worry about these positions in heaven. Those for whom it was prepared will have those positions. And that God in his sovereignty rules over his kingdom and all of us have our place. This is not heavenly musical chairs where we fight over positions. But it's more that your chair has your name on it. And you don't have to worry about your position. Now this part of the story ends with Matthew telling us what the other ten disciples thought about all this. Look at verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now I think it's possible that their indignation shows that they might have been thinking the same thing and they're sort of mad they didn't ask their mom to ask first. And I think part of, part of the problem here is, again, it shows how much the disciples have to learn about what it truly means to follow Jesus. And that's going to lead to Jesus giving more teaching about it, what it means to be like him. So let's look at verses 25 to 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus calls the disciples together. He probably did this on more than one occasion when they fought with each other. (laughs) All right, guys, come here, let's talk about this. But Jesus contrasts the leadership that he wants from his followers with how the unbelieving rulers of the Gentiles lead. And when Jesus uses that term, rulers of the Gentiles, the disciples would have first and foremost thought of the Romans. Jesus is saying to them, don't look to how the Romans rule their empire and see that as your standard for leadership. But if you are going to lead, be great among God's people. You need to serve those who are under your leadership. Think of the context of James and John wanting cabinet position, and Jesus says, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. About this, one commentator writes about how this would be received to people living at that time. He says this, In the pagan world, humility was not regarded as a virtue, but as a vice. Imagine a slave being given leadership. Jesus' ethics of leadership and power in his community of his disciples were revolutionary. And this culminates in verse 28, where Jesus tells his disciples why they should live this way. 
And it's a pretty simple answer because that's how Jesus lived. Look at verse 28. This is one of those Bible memory verses, though, just just as a quick aside on this one. Verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Those in leadership serve because that is what Jesus did. Jesus was the incarnate Son of God, and if anyone deserved to be served, wasn't it him? And even though, as he will say later in Matthew, even though that he is above all authorities, Jesus came to this world to serve others and to die a sacrificial death. Again, just as this part of the passage began with a description of his crucifixion and resurrection, here, Jesus includes that he is going to die as a ransom for his people. Jesus is telling them that as he goes to the cross, he is doing so as a sacrifice for the many who will believe in him. Now, there's another neat layer that this language points us back to Isaiah 52 and 53, the talk of the suffering servant of God who saves the many. You can read the whole thing, those two chapters later, but let me give you one excerpt from Isaiah 53, verses 10 to 12. And I want you to see these layers of the servant who dies for the many. Beginning of verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Verse 28 is such an important verse because it clearly states why Jesus died on the cross and how how he lived needs to be reflected in our own lives. That word ransom there could also be used in context of the purchasing price for freeing slaves. And that idea of being a ransom for denotes this idea of substitution. That Jesus died to pay the price for your freedom from slavery to sin. And he did so by offering himself as a substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. And if Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, came to the world to serve us in that way, how much more should we serve one another? You and I were bought with a price, so we honor Jesus' sacrifice by living like him. Jesus lived as the suffering servant, and therefore we must not be obsessed with the ladder of power and authority. Rather, we must serve others. And as he's saying this to the original disciples, I think it's helpful to see this functioning on two different levels based on those original disciples. 
And the first level is that of the original disciples were the first leaders of the church. And there are specific applications to how Jesus wants the leaders in his church to act based on this. But there's another level where these disciples represent just being a disciple of Jesus. They're the first disciples. And so we see that this call to service is for all of God's people. That Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And in that way, we need to live lives of service to others, not just being served ourselves. And I think this gives us two, two important applications. First of all, I think it changes how we view leadership. One of the ways that I try to live this out in my life is thinking, in, thinking of leadership primarily in terms of responsibility instead of primarily in terms of authority. That when we first think of leadership, our first thought is responsibility rather than authority. Now, another sermon for another time is that you need to make sure that the ideas of authority and responsibility are matching, right? And churches and leaders get into trouble when authority and responsibility are out of balance. But for today, the main application for this to a leadership perspective is you need to protect your heart from the temptation of power-hungry leadership and viewing leadership as responsibility more than simply authority. True leadership is more than just having the authority to make decisions. And leaders in the community of Jesus need to serve those whom God has given them to lead. But secondly, and I think this point applies to all of us, this is a direct attack on the consumerism that pervades our world and too often pervades our hearts. The idol of consumerism is very popular in our culture and it is an easy idol for our individual hearts. The greatest antidote against that consumerism is serving others. God's people should not just be known as consumers, but we need to be known for how we serve one another. And in the last part of the passage, Jesus is going to demonstrate what this looks like. And again, it's going to be reflected in who he is as the promised Savior, but then how does he live, and then how should we then live? Let's look at the last part, beginning of verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. 
Now again, as part to just give us a transition to the story, Matthew tells us that they went out of Jericho and a great crowd followed him. But there's another level of importance here as Jericho was only about a day's journey from Jerusalem. And so it's Matthew's way of telling us, look, we're getting closer to Jerusalem. And as they are heading to Jerusalem, behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. We've seen this before, but son of David was one way to talk about Jesus as the promised Savior. We saw this at the very beginning of Matthew, in the genealogy of Matthew purposely connecting Jesus as the son of David. And there are many Old Testament passages that connect the promised Savior to being a son of David. I'll give you one because Christmas season is almost upon us. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Right? You all memorize that for Christmas. There is another verse. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Again, this is a very big theme in your Old Testament. The promised Savior is going to be the son of David. And these two blind men clearly see that Jesus is the son of David. There's another layer of irony there. But before we get on to how Jesus responds to this, I want to point out, and I'll come back to it a little bit, that this is almost identical to a story with two blind men back in Matthew chapter 9. Uh, But there's also going to be some differences here. But we'll see that in a bit. But now let's first look at how Jesus responds. Let me read verse 31 again. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. I want you to notice in verse 31 that the people don't want these two blind men to bother Jesus. Right? The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But we see in verse 32, Jesus does not listen to the crowd around him. He stops and calls them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, let our eyes be opened. And look how Jesus responds to their request, verse 34. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Jesus stops what he's doing to show mercy and pity to these two blind men. The crowd doesn't want him to waste his time with these two blind men. But Jesus stops and he heals them. 
Again, the commentators are helpful on this. Jesus mercifully healed the men despite the opposition of the crowds that, like the disciples, when we talked about Jesus and the children, wanted to bask in his glory but not practice his compassion. Again, there are a couple things going on here. Again, this idea of who Jesus is and what he's going to do, but then how does that affect how we live? In this miracle, Jesus is giving evidence that he is, in fact, the promised Savior, the Son of David. By healing the two men, he's proving what they said to him, that he is the Son of David. Another Isaiah passage, Isaiah 35, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And how will you know? Verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The Old Testament said the promised Savior is going to be the son of David and the way you're going to know him is that he heals blind men. So when these blind men say, heal us, son of David, and Jesus does, he is giving evidence to the people that he is in fact the promised Savior. The other interesting thing here is that Jesus offers this healing as an act of compassion or pity and service that he just spoke to the disciples about. Jesus offers a real-life example to what he had just been saying about serving by showing compassion and healing to these two men. What did Jesus do with his power and his time? He served and he healed. Now, one interesting difference between this passage and its very similar one back in chapter 9 is back in chapter 9, that was one of those stories where Jesus says, hey, don't tell anybody about me. But notice, there is no such command here. It's another sign that the time has come. It is time for him to finish his mission. The times are a change in, and Jesus' followers will from now on openly and freely proclaim that he is the promised Messiah. And as we discussed before with some of these things where it seems strange that Jesus would want people to be silent, it was because there was so much misunderstanding about what it meant for him to be the Messiah. And so now that he is about to enter Jerusalem, the time for such prohibitions is done. The fourth thing, and I think this gets a little more to what this looks like in our lives, is I want to highlight that Jesus takes time to show pity and mercy. As we've seen throughout this passage, we are to act like Jesus. Jesus served, we serve. Jesus showed mercy and pity, we show mercy and pity. But Jesus also demonstrated that this was important enough for him to stop what he was doing and to ignore the desires of those around him to heal these men. Again, it's included in there that they didn't want Jesus to stop to heal these people. And I think one of the biggest barriers to our serving others is our ability to stop what we're doing and serve. To set aside the desires of others in our lives and serve with mercy and compassion. One of my favorite examples 
of this comes from a study done at Princeton in the 1970s. Let me give you a brief summary of this experiment, one they would never be able to do today. Um, Students were recruited to speak on a religious topic, and half were assigned the Good Samaritan. And some of the subjects were told they were late and should hurry, and some were told they had just enough time to get to the recording room, and some were told they would arrive early. The only one of these variables that made a difference was how much of a hurry the subjects felt they were in. 63% of subjects that were in no hurry stopped to help. 45% of those in moderate hurry stopped. And only 10% of those that were in a great hurry stopped. One of the ways we must be like Jesus is a willingness to stop what we're doing, to break our schedules, and to serve others. You know, as you think of what this looks like in your life, we need to make sure we have space in our calendars for serving. Don't let the rush and busyness of your life prevent you from following Jesus in mercy and pity. A couple thoughts as we close up this morning. Number one, the death and resurrection of Jesus are at the center of everything we do. Central to the gospel accounts is Jesus changing the disciples' understanding of what it meant that he was the promised Savior, the Son of David. Jesus came to earth not to lead a rebellion, but to die and rise again for our salvation. And Jesus did not win through power and status, but through a sacrificial death and resurrection. His death was the ransom that set us free. The good news of Jesus, crucified and risen, is at the center of everything that we do. And it is only through faith in Jesus and his death and resurrection that we are forgiven of our sins, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life. Secondly, Jesus lived and died as a servant, and therefore we are to live as servants. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. He served in his life and he served in his death. And this means that all of Jesus' disciples are to live as servants to one another. One of the things we need to be known for is our service. And thirdly, don't pursue power and glory, but live with mercy and pity towards others. The healing of the blind men gives evidence that Jesus is truly the promised Savior, but it also gives us an example of how we are to serve Rather than pursue power and glory like James and John, we need to be pursuing serving others with mercy and pity. And like Jesus, we need to be willing to stop what we're doing and serve others. Make sure your life and your schedule have room for serving others and find joy in serving others like Jesus did. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you that you sent your son not just to be a good teacher, but to die and rise again so that we could be saved. And that as he served with his life and death, that we would serve one another and those around us. And that we would not be trying to climb the corporate ladder, 
but that we would be concerned with living with mercy and pity towards others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.